1: Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine big interview with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, our guest today is uh, Karen von Hippel, Dr. Karen von Hippel, who is the Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, which is the world's oldest and the UK's leading defence and security think tank. Karen ranged over a wide array of subjects, all fascinating. Her insights are, are really uh, very thought-provoking. And we started off by asking her whether the world was now a more dangerous place or how much more dangerous it was than before the big Russian invasion just every year ago. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. You've got a vast array of knowledge and experience, uh, so we're very lucky to have you. Uh, I'm going to start off by asking you how much more dangerous is the world we live in today compared to the one we knew before February 2022?
2: It's a great question. I think uh, in many ways we're still understanding how dangerous the world is. I think the war in Ukraine exposed an enormous cleavage at the global level that I think many people hadn't focused on enough, and that is the Russia-China alliance versus the West Versus the so called rest. And we can talk about that a bit later, but you know, because the rest is in several different places. But the Russia China alliance, as we know from this past week with President Xi in Moscow, is only uh, solidifying stronger. And the ramifications are still unknown. They don't want to call it an alliance for several reasons, but it's certainly a grouping that's offering a very different governance model to other countries out there.
1: This wasn't the view before the Xi meeting, was it? I mean, everyone was being pretty sanguine about China's role in all this, saying that it it was in its interest to avoid too close an alignment with Putin and the Kremlin. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. I mean, my reading of it is that this is a clear statement of where China thinks its interests lie in the future. Do you agree with that?
2: Well, I mean, don't forget that Xi and Putin... Uh, met just before the war on the margins of the Olympics or at the at the Olympics and committed to a limitless friendship. So the concern was already there before the war was launched several weeks beforehand, and we weren't sure what it meant then. Now I think it's more about uh, China's concern about America and America so-called trying, trying to contain them. That's what they're alleging anyway, that America trying to contain them. And of course, they have some good reasons to worry about that, uh, given sanctions, given all these American alliances uh, in different regions of the world, many of which are to confront China. So China's more worried about the U.S.'s stance towards China and is using Russia as one means to bolster its own place in the world.
1: Yeah, I was just interested in your views on the AUKAS outcast, I suppose you would say, I mean, is that something that the Chinese have a legitimate concern about?
2: Sure. The Chinese are concerned about AUKUS, they're concerned, which is the Australian-United Kingdom-U.S. alliance. They're concerned about the Quad, uh, which has India, the United States, Japan, and Australia. And uh, they're concerned about several of these pairings and alliances that uh, Japan is getting much more involved. Now it's rearming because it's concerned about China. So I think the Chinese, from their perspective, are very concerned about U.S. language and U.S. action. And the U.S. language is quite strident. And I think it's probably more strident than it should be because, of course, there are domestic political reasons why the Americans are China bashing all the time.
0: Karen, can I ask a, a specific question about, um, we talked about the visit, we spoke about it on our podcast this week, and Patrick and I have slight disagreement, and I'd be interested to know your feeling about this, about the significance of the recent visit. You, you've you spoken already uh, about the fact that these links were already there, the, these sort of pronouncements were already being made even before the invasion. And in my view, um, Putin was probably hoping for a lot more out of this visit than he actually got. There was, for example, no mention of the Uh, Siberia to gas pipeline, which is, uh, you know, assumed huge importance for Russia, given that it can't sell oil and gas in Europe any longer. So what's your view? I mean, was it? It seems to me to be a lopsided relationship. Now, Putin is very much the junior partner in all of this. And he was probably hoping for a lot more from that visit than he actually got. What was your reading of it?
2: Well, it's it's really hard to know, because we don't know exactly what they agreed to. A lot of it obviously happened behind closed doors. I think there was a four-hour meeting between the two leaders. Russia is now a junior partner, as you say, and John Kirby publicly mentioned that, this uh, one of the American spokespersons, and he did that in a way to poke the Russians because Russia doesn't see itself. It doesn't like to see itself as a junior partner. Russia used to be the more senior partner in that relationship, but now it is a junior partner. Russia is very isolated, so it's important for Putin to have had that visit because he can demonstrate on the global stage that he's still a global leader. But there are all sorts of other parts of the world where the Russians and the Chinese are pushing back against the West, and including in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And so, you know, it's still early days to see where some of the chips are going to fall. We know some countries in the global South, those countries that abstained in the original U.N. General Assembly Resolution last in March 2022 after the war uh, started, the one that condemned the Russian invasion. Thirty-five countries abstained, and then more recently on February 23rd, 32 countries abstained, and many of those countries in the global south are not just fence-sitters. They're actually more aligned with the Russian-Chinese narrative, and I think that's what's so disturbing to the United States, the United Kingdom, the French, and others in the West.
1: I think that's a very interesting point that we often overlook. Um, You mentioned the rest, you know, so everyone's very focused on, as you say, the West versus uh, Russia, China, but vast ways of the world are either uncommitted or uh, pro-China and Russia. And these are places that are very rich in resources. So in some ways, we're in a kind of 19th century colonial situation. There's a sort of scramble for Africa, new scramble for Africa going on. At the moment, where in fact the Chinese and the Russians are rivals, aren't they? But nonetheless, uh, how do you see this going? Um, is that something that we should be seriously concerned about and being doing, doing more to present our case to the global south?
2: I think the West, is, uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, the French in particular, are extremely worried about what's happening in Africa. I'm not sure China and Russia are competing with each other in Africa. China has been for many, many years investing in the the Belt and Road and other parts of Africa, uh, propping up a number of dictators. The Russians have had longstanding relationships in Africa because during the Cold War, they supported these armed movements in many countries. Angola, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South Africa are still grateful for the support that they received back then. And Russia is the largest arms supplier to Africa. What I am struck by is, of course, The French being humiliated, really, Macron being humiliated. I mean, do you remember early on in the conflict with with Ukraine, uh, Macron kept saying we need to find off-ramps for Putin. We don't want to humiliate Putin. What does Putin do? He turns around and humiliates Macron in the Sahel region, where the French have longstanding partnerships and have now withdrawn. They withdrew from five countries um, in November. One of those is Mali, and now that's fully in the French sphere. So I think that's quite interesting. Uh, the United States has sent four or five senior officials, Janet Yellen, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and I think Kamala Harris, the vice president, will be going soon to Africa on it, trying to push back on a counteroffensive. And more recently, I don't know if you noticed, but the United States released intelligence that the Russian Wagner group was going to try to assassinate the leader of Chad which is fascinating because, of course, uh, the Russians are in Chad. They're providing military training and other types of support. So there's certainly a battle going on in Africa, and I'm not sure the West is going to win this because they have seen, been seen by so many African countries as colonialist, imperialist, lecturing, hectoring. And the Russians don't do that at all, right? They just say, you know, we'll we'll, we'll sort out your resources. I mean, of course, they're pillaging in these countries or treating civilians horribly. There's you know, there's some massacres that have allegedly happened in a number of places. Uh so, you know, the the jury is still out about how the people in these countries will view the Russians, but at the moment the Russians are quite popular.
0: In terms of global security, though, Karen, does what's happening in Africa matter as much as other parts of the globe uh, in terms of Russian and and Chinese influence and and America and the West sense of of their own security?
2: Yes, it does. I mean, it matters not just In the UN and places where we, you know, where there are many important issues that require global support, but of course, Africa is home to a number of resources, rare earth minerals, you know, Africa is going to become even more important going forward. And that's why you hear the rhetoric changing that by the United States and others that Africans are partners It's not about development aid. There are partners now. Um, You hear that from Biden and others. The U.S. held an Africa summit. Putin is about to host another African summit. Chinese host African summit. So uh, there is a a scramble, as you said, Patrick. It's a good way to describe it. There's a scramble. Uh, Some people say, well, it's the new Cold War, and we don't want that to be fought out here. We don't want to become, you know, get in the middle of it. But, of course, uh, many countries are very good at manipulating external actors for their own purposes as well as we know
0: okay that's enough for part one join us in part two when we'll be hearing more fascinating insight from karen von hippel
1: welcome back to the big interview with dr karen von hippel Now, Karen, can we move over the other side of the Atlantic to the presidential next presidential election? We've got both the Republican front runners making very kind of isolationist uh, noises to our ears anyway. How serious are they, do you think? And what would be the effect if there was a Republican president in the White House acting on campaign stances?
2: You're talking about DeSantis and Trump, both, you know, DeSantis recently made some comments about Ukraine being a territorial dispute. He got a lot of pushback from more traditional Republicans. And then Trump, who knows? He's just sort of a little bit, you know, off the ranch, really, in many ways about foreign policy. We've seen that he can be very unpredictable. And um, so he would certainly be very damaging. It's not clear yet who is going to, you know, who's going to become the candidate. At the moment, Trump looks like he's still the most popular amongst the rank and file Republicans. Uh, But it's still early days. And, you know, he's about to be indicted in several different jurisdictions, New York, maybe Georgia. I don't know how if this is going to damage him or not. It it won't damage him among his base, but it might damage him amongst others. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's too early to predict. But yeah, it would be a concern, certainly if DeSantis becomes president in terms of foreign policy. He's just untested. He doesn't know much about it. He's making rookie mistakes now. It doesn't mean he might become more sophisticated and change. mean don't forget, Obama didn't know much about foreign policy either before he became president. Most most candidates don't. They're much more steeped in domestic. I think uh, President Biden is the one president who came into office with decades of foreign policy experience, but most of the rest do not have that.
0: I mean, Karen, as you were alluding to, uh, DeSantis has already rode back on some of those initial comments, given the response from some of the senior Republican leaders in Congress. And that gives us, or it gives me, uh, as someone who feels that Ukraine needs to be solidly backed in this conflict, uh, a little bit of confidence that um, it's not necessarily going to lead to an immediate pullout or some kind of disastrous scenario where where America stops supplying Uh, stop supporting Ukraine? What's your feeling?
2: Well, we don't know. And that's why the next sort of year and a half are so important uh, before the elections. And it's important to the Ukrainians, not just because of US support, Western support in general, but also because the longer the war lasts, the harder it will be for the Ukrainians to maintain their fighting stance. They'll just be worn down by the greater number of Russian troops. Um, I mean, the Russians are taking significant losses, as we know. It doesn't seem to be impacting Russia yet. Uh, but, we, you know, the longer it lasts, I think the more it is in Russia's favor. Now, I think what is potentially likely to happen, kind of a worst-case scenario, is some sort of protracted stalemate where there's low-level fighting, that the the four regions in the East and Crimea, well, let's just say Crimea likely stays in Russian hands, and the the other regions are probably low level fighting like there has been for some time, and there isn't a real peace deal. There's more likely some sort of armistice north Korea South Korea type option, and then that's the best thing for Russia because of course, it's hard for Ukraine to get in the EU and NATO if it has parts of its country still in conflict. and so you know I think. That's another way for Russia to wear down Ukraine. But we don't know. Anything could happen. I mean, tomorrow we could wake up and we find out that, you know, Putin fell out of a window or, you know, what seems to happen to all of his opponents. He could have a heart attack. There could be some game changer on the battlefield if the West is able to ramp up its support significantly in the very near future. But at the moment, it's not looking good. It's looking more likely a protracted conflict and potentially a protracted stalemate.
0: It's a pretty bleak assessment, Karen. I mean, we've just seen pictures of Russia sending, I think it's T 52 tanks, isn't it, Patrick? I mean, these are kind of 1960s models. Um, the West may be making more out of this than they need to, but it's not a good sign for the Russian military, frankly. And there are other indications that w- we've seen that things are not right with their military. And it may be we're pretty optimistic, or I am, that Ukraine is about to make significant gains. But your view, of course, which may well be correct, is a bleak one. Um, And if it is right, if you are right, and and we do settle down to some kind of, you know, pretty messy uh, scenario in which uh, Russia has not been significantly rebuffed on the battlefield, what does that tell us for the security of Europe going forward?
2: Yeah, look, I don't know what will happen. No, no one really knows. I mean, it's true what, what you're saying that they're, you know, that the Russians are suffering heavily, they're suffering heavy losses in particular, but they seem to not mind throwing bodies at this. And they seem to not mind losing civilians. I don't know what the tipping point will be in Moscow. They've already lost far more than they have in really any other conflict after the Second World War. You two would know better. Uh, but I think we need to plan for that scenario and hope that it doesn't happen because what I worry about is we think that, oh, we'll have some sort of deal. The Ukrainians are going to win soon, and let's think about peace plan, let's plan for reconstruction. Yes, we need to do all of that, but we also need to plan for the worst-case scenario for the Ukrainians and, and how we're going to deal with Putin. I mean, for me, this indictment by the International Criminal Court of Putin as a war criminal was almost irrelevant because I've we've all seen him as a war criminal. I don't know what Western leader could ever shake his hand before that indictment even because of what he's already done in Ukraine and the, the you know the acts he's committed, the, the war crimes that he's committed. But I just think we need to be pl- planning for that. I don't hear enough coming from any government about how we would deal with Putin if he remains in power. Is There's just nobody talking about that. And I'm not sure how, you know, I don't have behind-the-scenes uh, access to what's going on. Um, But I do worry that allies aren't being as vocal as they perhaps should be about how we would operate in such a system.
1: Are you um, encouraged by the degree of solidarity Europe has shown thus far, anyway, towards Ukraine? That's not necessarily something we would have predicted at the start of this conflict.
2: Yeah, I mean, everybody has been saying, you know, Putin rightly thought, the West would cave because it had caved so many times in the past. And he has been able to poke and interfere in all of our countries, whether it's election interference or media interference, or in many cases, military interference. There was Georgia. There was in 2008, there was Crimea in 2014. There was Syria in September, 2015 when he came in in big numbers militarily, and we just got out of the way. So there was every reason for him to believe that we would all get out of the way And the fact that the West finally woke up to that threat was, I I suspect, a huge surprise to him. He was considered such a genius tactician, probably more than strategist, but tactician before this. And in many ways, he's completely eroded that view of him. Uh, But he's, you know, he's in so deep. I'm not sure how he gets himself out of that in terms of his own survival. Um, So, yeah, the West is mostly aligned, but it's still been slow, slower than many want it to be um, in terms of providing support. I mean, you could make the case, yeah, well, look, in a a year and a bit, it's ramped it up in extraordinary ways, West has in ways that it has never done before in this kind of a conflict. There's still some stragglers. There's still challenges like Hungary. Uh, There's been some nice surprises like Poland. (laughs) Uh, And, of course, if if the war ends sooner rather than later, Ukraine will probably emerge as having the strongest military in Europe. And probably will be aiding others uh, in terms of training and how to use technology in conflict. I mean, there's all sorts of incredible innovations that the Ukrainians have, you know, come up with by necessity that often happens in conflicts. They've shown themselves to be incredibly brave and everyone's admiring of that. So, you know, it could have gone the, the Afghanistan way and it didn't. It went, you know, exactly the opposite direction.
0: Karen, one of the most alarming aspects of the last year has been the nuclear saber rattling that the Russians have been indulging in, and even going so far as to suggest that uh, Britain sending depleted uranium shells with its Challenger 2 tanks is a, is, is a, a form of escalation. And um, But how seriously do you take these threats? We were a little bit alarmed at the beginning of the year, that is um, shortly after the big invasion of Ukraine began, but we've been getting less convinced that these threats actually mean anything. What's your take?
2: Well, I mean, the conventional wisdom, I don't know if this is true or not, but there's certainly a belief that part of the reason that the Russian threats have uh, at least been abated, they haven't disappeared entirely, because we've heard Medvedev and a few others make these comments, is because of Chinese pressure on the Russians. But, you know, it's not Entirely clear. Some people say that isn't true. Some China watchers say that isn't true. Um, but certainly, the concern about the global situation with respect to nuclear threats can make one incredibly despondent because don't forget it's not just Russia's threati- threatening to use tactical nukes in Ukraine. Um, but of course, the Iran deal is pretty much dead, even if obviously China was able to get Iran and Saudi to sign a deal. We've had Kim Jong un and North Korea. Uh, expanding his nuclear arsenal and testing uh, various missiles. China is expanding and diversifying its nuclear arsenal. And, and many countries are developing weapons like hypersonics that are outside of international agreements and partnerships. So there's a lot of reason to be concerned, not just about the nuclear threat inside Ukraine, but at the global level, about you know, the global nuclear posture.
1: Karen, can I ask you for your thoughts about Taiwan? At the beginning of the conflict, I think there was a kind of hope that this would actually, uh, the West's robust response would actually send a signal to China that uh, would deter them from advancing their, their plans for Taiwan. My feeling, I don't know about you, Saul, is that as time has gone on, it's actually had the opposite effect. And um, indeed, they're, they're rather encouraged by what they're seeing. Is that how you see it?
2: who's who's encouraged the chinese are encouraged
1: yeah i i think that um they're well i'm this is just speculation of course but i think particularly following the the meeting in moscow uh it seems to me that they're now in a posture where they think okay um with the west preoccupied with ukraine it can't it's not going to have the capacity to actually oppose us should we launch uh, this, you know, long feared invasion of Taiwan. And indeed, this is something that is is coming out of, you know, Western intelligence briefings are saying, uh, in America, particularly, uh, that they fear the operation could be launched as early as January 2025. Um, is that something that, that concerns you?
2: Well, of course, everything concerns me like in these kinds of situations. Uh, it's, it's always dangerous to predict what might happen. There are a lot of reasons that the Chinese would not invade that held true at the start of the war that still hold true today because they're seeing how isolated Russia is. They're seeing how Russia is not able to come back under Putin's leadership into any sort of international community. Um, They would have to manage a very difficult and tricky uh, insurgency, likely. And then there's the strange question of what happens to the Taiwanese silicon chip capacity. Don't forget, Taiwan has the most sophisticated is the only country that can manufacture them at that level. I mean, I know the Dutch also have impressive capability too, but the Taiwanese are are the global leaders. The Chinese need Taiwanese chips. And, you know, we we go to Taiwan most years at, at Rusi. I was there in October, and it was a very interesting conversation talking about how in many ways the Taiwanese see their chip capability as a deterrence. And, that, you know, whether that means they... You know, they blow up their own factories uh, if the Chinese invade or the Americans just stop doing their part of the relationship. There's a lot of design that happens in the United States before it gets to Taiwan. Um, But, you know, that is an interesting deterrent. I don't know how, you know, seriously the Chinese take it or not, but it's certainly some a factor to bring into the thinking about this.
1: Well, that surely would have global co- consequences, though, wouldn't it? It wouldn't just be uh, China who suffered. It would be the entire world economy.
2: And, and the Chinese realize that. So they have military reasons to be concerned. They haven't had a military conflict, what, since Vietnam or, or, or Korea, right? You two would know better. They haven't been involved militarily in a significant way. They've, of course, had skirmishes with the Indians and others. Um, and so I think China worries more than Russia about having egg on its face. Militarily, you know, Putin's been humiliated, but he can just say black is white like he does. But the Chinese, I don't think, would deal with it in the same way, and I think it would be a huge blow to Xi's prestige and leadership. I know they see Taiwan as a inherent part of China, and the return of it is, you know, something, of course, that they take very seriously. But I think that they also worry about a number of the challenges that the Russians have faced. I think they're trying to root out their own worries about corruption inside the military. As we've seen, obviously, a lot of the Russian defense modernization didn't happen. The money was just stolen. I think Chinese are starting to try to root that out in their own system because of what they've learned.
0: I mean, on that subject, Karen, I I quoted something in the podcast today, uh, a statistic I'd seen that uh, over 80% of of weaponry coming into China, obviously it makes a, a lot of its own stuff, but the stuff it does import comes from Russia. Uh, now that rather surprised me given what we've seen on the battlefield of ukraine and and it may be that they're going to want to reverse that that trend and get their stuff from somewhere else
2: now there is a concern also of course you just reminded me that the um chinese are going to supply the russians with weapons and the americans are threatening sanctions so that's another factor you know that China would go go into a very negative situation at the global level, not only if it invaded Taiwan, because, of course, there would be global sanctions against it, but also uh, if it starts to supply weapons. I think there is concern that it's already supplying Russia with dual-use components. It's certainly uh, getting a lot of, you know, uh, it's buying its hydrocarbons, and so it's able to provide Russia with a lot of cash to sustain its war. Um, But, yeah, there is concern about China supplying weapons to Russia as well.
0: So to sum up the issue of Taiwan then, Karen, uh, we take your caveat, we we can never know for sure, but your your feeling seems to me, and it seemed to agree with my feeling actually, because Patrick and I do slightly disagree on this too, that uh, there are more reasons for China not to invade Taiwan anytime soon than there are uh, the other way.
2: Yeah, I don't think China's worried about America being distracted by Ukraine. America can handle Ukraine. And supporting the Ukrainians and certainly applying enormous sanctions on China at the same time, if not military support. Uh, they've always planned for several simultaneous wars. We've seen though that there is a huge challenge in just getting ammunition and, and you know basic supplies to the Ukrainians. So it wouldn't be easy, but I think the Americans could do it if it had to. And I know that China cares a lot about its global economic position and doesn't want to cause a, glo- a global economic crisis. So I think that whatever they do, it's a lot easier for them to, you know, as many people have said, it's a lot easier for them to win this war by not invading, by just continuing its policy of slowly strangling Taiwan. And there are a lot of ways you can do it without using military force. Uh don't know if they would succeed or not. And the Taiwanese are, you know, thinking through how they would handle this in very different ways than they did even a year ago. So, but you know, it'll take Taiwan some time to bolster up its own resiliency and change its, you know, its military conscription and all sorts of things that they need to do at the local level. They call it the porcupine strategy that they become more like a porcupine to prevent the Chinese from uh, establishing a foothold than buying all sorts of enormous weapons systems. That's what the American pressure has been on on Taiwan over the last few years.
1: Well, it's nice to have some reassurance at the end, Karen. So thank you very well, much. Well, I mean, for I don't know. I don't
2: know. None <laughs> of us. None of us knows.
1: None of us knows. But it's. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, there's more to be concerned about globally than probably there has been in a, in, in a number of years, um, and because precisely because it's so. Everything is so uncertain, and we don't know how a number of these things are going to play out. We don't know how the Russian-Chinese non-alliance alliance alliance is going to play out. We don't know the ramifications of China's actions at the global level. It would be wonderful if China turned around and was able to pressure Russia to pull out of Ukraine, but it doesn't seem to be that interested in doing so right now. It seems more interested in saying, well, let's hold on to the gains the Russians have made so far, which is unacceptable, as we know, to the Ukrainians right now.
1: Thank you very much once again, Karen. uh, It was a great pleasure to have you on. We've learned a lot.
2: Well, a pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you.
0: Well, that was wonderful, wasn't it, Patrick? She moved across so many interesting subjects and some quite alarming stuff that I have to say. Um, You know, the talk about Africa, I asked, does it matter that China and Russia are gaining increasing influence in Africa that sounds in retrospect like a rather naive question. Their response was, "Yes, it really does matter. Resources, uh, the influence on the UN, and other effects." Is this a, a trend you've been keeping your eye on, Patrick?
1: Well, it sort of goes up and down, doesn't it? If you think about the at the height of the Islamic State and all that kind of you know war on terror stuff, suddenly Africa became uh, very much in the in the forefront of people's minds and a lot of energy. And uh, resources were poured into trying to sort of contain uh, the threat of um, Africa actually becoming a sort of like an armed camp, a sort of huge no go area for the West where. Uh, jihad could be exported from and that that sort of died down a bit but it's still there there's still plenty of that going on as karen was saying about you know, the situation in uh, in the uh, french old french colonies uh, there's, there's a lot of jihadi activity there they seem to be able to operate pretty much unchecked so yeah i mean it, it definitely is something that we we haven't really been thinking that much about and maybe we should do more I mean Karen's not
0: given to over optimism uh, she clearly uh, like all of us is a supporter of Ukraine and and yet feels that things could go you know horribly wrong there she's not convinced that the uh, Russians are on their last legs she She doesn't know, of course, and defers to us to a certain extent as as so-called military experts. I think things are looking a lot grimmer for the Russians than, than she probably does. But at the same time, we all have to accept the possibility that she was putting forward, which is it may end messily. There may be some kind of ceasefire, but no peace treaty. We may have ongoing low-level conflict in those four provinces she was talking about, Russia keeps Crimea. And the really big question, Patrick, that she posed at the end, which is absolutely right, how do we deal with Putin if he stays in power?
1: Yes, I think we're always assuming that military collapse will bring about uh, political change. But is that necessarily the case? I mean, one of the things that really impressed me about Karen is, is the way that she is always... First to say, you know, these are imponderables. These are things we can speculate about, but we just simply don't know. So one of the things that she said that struck me forcibly was that expect the unexpected. Who knows what's going on inside the Kremlin? After all these months, we still don't have any real insight, do we, into how decisions are making how the sort of balance of power is aligned at the moment. So, uh, yeah, but that's what makes the, in a terrible way, it makes this conflict so fascinating, is all these sort of elements that could go one way or the other and completely change the situation. And, of course, you know, we're coming up to another critical moment when the great counteroffensive is launched. I think it'll be a very different-looking military operation to the one we've seen on the Russian side. So, yeah, I mean, the, the situation is extraordinarily fluid.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to hear the big picture from someone like Karen. In some ways, it's very frustrating talking to people like her because they say, we simply don't know what's going to happen and we've got to plan for all eventualities. And and yeah, I'm I know I'm guilty of wishful thinking in cases like this. It's clear who the villain is and it's clear what needs to happen, which is, you know... Uh, the villain is defeated and the villain is toppled and the villain uh, has to take his punishment. But that's not really how the world works, is it, Patrick? I mean, you know, we can possibly, myself included, be, be forgiven for a, a bit of naivety on this podcast.
1: Yes, I think absolutely right what she said, that we've got to spend more time thinking about the worst, worst case scenario of a stalemate and of Russia hanging on to uh, a lot of its gains, or at least since 2014 in Ukraine.
0: I still think, I have to say, Patrick, you know, I just want to get this on the record now that um, I, I don't think it's going to end as messily as she thinks it is. But, but of course, we have to plan for that possibility. And one last point, which encouraged me a little bit, she did concede that there were more reasons why China won't invade Taiwan in the near future uh, than there were reasons for it to do so. So that tiny, tiny chink of light right at the end of the interview.
1: Well, let's hold on to that thought. Apologies for my croaky voice today. I'm afraid I've gone down with COVID. I think I'm coming out of it. So uh, next time I should sound a bit better. Thanks very much for joining us. And uh, don't forget to listen on Friday to our latest news and analysis. Thank you. Goodbye.